I'm Asan, and this is the Friday Show. Um, we're going to do this a little differently today. Normally, we'd look back at the Champions League game as well as last weekend's win as well. Um, but we're going to devote the first half of the podcast to this week's Football League's revelations in the German publication, Der Spiegel. Um, joining me to make sense of it all, I've got our own resident legal counsel, Stefan. Morning, Stefan. Hi. How are you? Good, yeah. Do you feel as though this whole thing has been a massive distraction from the derby? For who? <laughs> for us. Well, for fans, maybe. I don't think the players care. No, I, hope I not. mean, no, you no, know, no, definitely. Not. You know, this is these is this is the way the club is funding their enormous wages. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, you know, look, the journalists have had a lot of fun with it. We know. Yeah. Oh, indeed. Um, We'll get into that a bit later. Look, what I want to what I want to do is I want to get straight into the meat of the leaks themselves and what they mean. What we're going to do is we're going to go through them. There was four parts, so we'll literally just go through it part by part. Um, and I'd like you to try and unpack, try and separate the hyperbole and the headlines um, from the facts themselves and how they may relate to City and what rules were broken and what rules weren't broken. Um, we'll start with the first leak. So the first leak, with the first leak came the, what I think is the big overarching revelation of the week. And that is that uh, the Abu Dhabi United group were putting money into their own companies to then fund sponsorships of Manchester City. Um, now, firstly, I want to be clear about something, Stefan. Uh, what time period are we talking about with respect now that we've had all four leaks with with specifically with respect to financial alleged financial impropriety from city's point of view what years are we talking about well as far as i can say aside from the copenhagen article yesterday um all of this stuff is pre-settlement in 14 so okay. l- largely 12 13 and even before uh some interesting documents. The overriding thing that before we start talking about any of this is we have got a very partial, one-sided set of information. Right? Yeah. So that Der Spiegel have done what they've done. Uh, you know, I, I saw it being described as wonderful journalism. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the technicality is on as a journalist whether you, when you're just taking a whole load of clearly hacked documents and, and and then putting them together in a very one-sided way. I don't know whether that constitutes high-quality journalism or not, uh, but that's what we've got. Uh, and you see it in the language that's been used throughout the every article. You know, it's, very, it's incredibly judgmental and not saying here are the facts and you make your own conclusions. Mm. It, it's an extremely one-sided uh, set of articles designed to make a point which is fine but but people need to understand that's what it is and what surprises me a little bit is that some of our journalists including some of the better ones seem seem to just take the whole thing at face value uh, and that's not to say Des Spiegel is a poor publication it's not it's a high quality publication but I would suggest the way in which these articles are written means that they're not overly objective in terms of their analysis well, I mean, let's let's try and have a little bit of analysis of 
So we'll start with part one. Um, I, in fact, before we talk about City's kind of uh, role, the Super League revelation, what what is that? I mean, that was old, right? Well, well, to me, I mean, that... So, so in some ways, that's the most recent stuff. Yes. And it's a... I find it quite a, an odd combination of things. You've got... Um, Clearly, there is a negotiation with the top clubs in Europe, of which City are desperately trying to be on that top table of clubs. I think they have been in the latter stages of discussions around what's next for UEFA, Champions League, these sorts of tournaments. City have been at the table. Historically, probably not. And from what I can see of the, and it's an extremely long article, the one about the Super League, is it's one that they're very, very keen on and passionate about, particularly in relation to Rummenigge. Now, to me, all that article is, is a whole load of teams looking for options and outs. And if you look at how the Premier League was formed, when that was formed in you know, the early 90s, it's actually a very similar situation. Clubs want more money, don't feel they're getting their fair share. In terms of uh, trying to up the ante with UEFA, they're looking at what their options are. So they're going to their lawyers and saying, can you just advise us on our risks, our options? Uh, If we go to a separate league, do we still have to give our players up for uh, internationals? Uh, You know, can we... Can we just break the league? You know, can we just leave the league overnight? All of these things. This is what it's painted to be kind of an absolute outrage that this uh, Gerlinger, who heads up Bayern's uh, legal department, would ask lawyers these these views. These are normal things that yeah. a, a general counsel will be asked by a board so that we can make a decision as to what our next steps are. Please, can you go and get some advice? So that we can, in our, in our deliberations about what our options are, we can have a, a fuller picture. It may not be a complete picture, but it's a fuller picture of what we can and can't do. So okay. as I read that, what you've got here is a number of the clubs, including Bayern, um, led largely by the kind of the old cartel, the Uniteds and the Barces and the Reals, um, and actually not City in, in the earlier part looking at what their options are to apply more pressure to UEFA to get the tournaments in a shape that work better for them, both from a financial perspective and also on a longer-term basis to ensure that they're never out of it if they have a bad season. Yeah. Um, And that's reasonable. You know, they're trying to apply pressure in a commercial context to UEFA. That's That's not a surprise or unusual. Were you surprised by the reaction to, because obviously this slightly predates the City leaks, the first leak was the, the Super League leak, and there was this sort of, you know, rush to judgment from the media and, you know, paragraphs and paragraphs basically devoted to the death of the game and how this was a sign of the ongoing greed of the big clubs. I mean, you know, is that hyperbole necessary? I guess what I'm asking you is, is did, did it... When you look at that document, is that the blueprint for what's happening next, or is that just almost like research, if that makes sense? Well, well, so I think there's two parts to it. I haven't heard one fan, journalist, uh, commentator think it's a good idea. 
right? Mm. So I think everybody, except for the commercial teams at the clubs, think a European Super League is a bad idea, okay? None of us want to see uh, a, well, I don't think we do, a 16-team, no relegation, European Super Club League. That's just not, it's just not the game. And... And ultimately, I very much doubt it will come to pass in the form of that kind of 34-week league, you know, with no relegation. I just don't buy that. You've then got overlaid on... So you've got the situation where the teams are trying to figure out whether it's a good idea or whether it's even feasible to apply pressure to UEFA. You've then got this Charlie um, Stilitano, right? Now, I don't know if you've heard this guy on... He's the guy that's leading La Liga right now in terms of this US breakaway thing. Yeah. Um, now, I heard him on radio a few weeks ago, on Radio 5. He's actually really impressive in the way that he talks about what he's trying to do. And fundamentally, what we had was he was saying, if La Liga wants to compete with the Premier League, they have to up the ante. And upping the ante is doing things that the Premier League has not yet done or doing it better than the Premier League. Now... They're way behind in terms of the way that they package the product in La Liga. So he's saying, well, let's try something different. And so he's leading uh, quite a revolution in terms of that La Liga move to the US. That's, his, that's the kind of guy he is. Now, he's then also behind, as far as I can gather, this document that just so happens to be produced in October, just before the leagues come out. And it's a document that apparently is super confidential, yet is not in code, okay? So everything is usually in code in these situations. It's got the names of the teams on the front of the document. Well, that's utterly bizarre. I mean, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you have code names? It it purports to be a binding document when, uh, you know, heads of terms and memos of understanding, they're just not binding documents mm. because they can't be, frankly. Who purports it's a binding document, just to be clear? The top of the document does. Okay. If it's real, you know, it's got this weird um, balance of ownership. Now, we know from the Premier League, the idea that, um, you know, the Uniteds, the Liverpools, the Cities are going to accept an imbalanced equity ownership of the, of the league. It's just nonsense. If you look at the Premier League now, even now, everybody has one share each. Hmm. The idea that they're going to let uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid together, and, and there's the link with La Liga again, with this... Um, Stilitano, the idea that they're going to let those guys walk off with, uh, you know, 35% of the league, of the equity, it's just, I think it's a nonsense. So I think you have to separate that heads of terms that's got everybody excited as being, oh, it's dated November 18, it must be about to happen. I think that document, I'm not saying it's a fake, I'm saying that it's a wish list that is nowhere near what's going to come to pass. Okay. So, so, so really what you've got is uh, Stilitano, who's said openly he wants to drive La Liga to the fore of the world game because that's his job. He's a very commercial, aggressive North American who wants to drive that. And then you've got on the other side of it a whole load of the leading clubs of Europe trying to push UEFA to do what they want to do. Both of those things are not a massive surprise, but doesn't mean that the Super League in itself is going to happen anytime soon. Okay, perfect. Um Right, let's talk about the city stuff. Uh, part one, Simon Pierce and the Abu Dhabi sponsorships 
between, as far as I can tell, 2010 and 2014. That feels like the time period that is mentioned um, within the documents. Now, in part one, as I said uh, earlier, was it's the it's the overarchingly controversial one because it's the kind of knob of this idea that effectively Mansour and Abu Dhabi were corruptly putting money into city and purposefully breaking the FFP rules. Um, do you want to drill a little bit into what is in that first leak and how much of it, in your opinion, from a... I want you to kind of approach this from a legal and a commercial standpoint. How will City be reacting to seeing this out in the public domain vis-a-vis whether there's going to be any consequences? Because that's the question at the very end of this, of each part that everybody's going to ask is what happens to City? Can they come after us for this? So talk me through what the real meat of part one is. Well, well, let's start with 2014, right? And work back. Okay. They sign a settlement. Yeah. Now, you sign a settlement in a negotiation it, uh, that's meant to draw a line. The whole be clear about, let's just be clear about what the, what the settlement is. So in 2014, City signed a settlement with UEFA based on UEFA's accusation that City have failed financial fair play regulations in the previous monitoring period. And therefore, there needs to be, these are the consequences of City failing financial fair play. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and, and I think it is important just to do that step back because that doesn't happen overnight, okay? So what happens is there's effectively a decision taken, there's a submission made, a decision taken by UEFA that there is enough grounds for UEFA to further investigate the finances of City for for the period in question. Okay. So from what we can gather, they send in a PwC team. So PricewaterhouseCoopers, one of the leading auditors in the world, are are sent into City to evaluate various aspects of the submission that's made to UEFA. Okay. What, What appears clear from the documents that are provided and the statements that are made are that lots of the things that are now said to be outrageous deals were actually at the core of the discussions that were had with uh, PwC and UEFA. So if you look at, let's take, uh, uh, for example, the, and I know we're, we're doing part one at the moment, but if you take Fordham as a good example, because Fordham is clearly, the whole reason that there's an article on Fordham is because PwC have asked City questions about the Fordham arrangement. Okay. Now, to do that, they would have had to have been told about the arrangement in general. Yeah. They came to a conclusion that it didn't look like it was arm's length. They asked City, Simon Cliff is, is mentioned, uh, who's the, the chief lawyer there, whether what the commercial arrangement is on the other side of the transaction. So what, what's happening there is PwC is saying, look, we've looked at these documents, we've looked at this arrangement, and it doesn't make sense to us. That looks like an uncommercial, non-arms length transaction. Mm. Can you explain it to us, please, City? And City say, well, look, we don't know. You know, this is not our transaction. This is, 
we're, we're just we're just one party to the transaction. You'll have to ask them. That's what City say. Slightly disingenuous, but contractually probably true. Okay. Now, the key point there is that UEFA, PwC know about the situation. I would bet a lot of money that in the PwC report that goes back to UEFA, that City specifically say within one of these articles that they fundamentally disagree with the conclusions that are made, that they disagree with the accounting treatment, that they disagree with the illegal analysis. I would suggest that in that PwC report, it says, we believe that the Fordham transaction is not arm's length and that it is not a commercial transaction and therefore should be disregarded for the purposes of FFP. Okay. So I believe that a number of these things that are in here, if not all of them, are already within the discussions that went on during that auditing period. Gotcha. And therefore, the idea then that the settlement is kind of null and void, I think is, is very unlikely. Okay. It, when you do a settlement of the type that City did, it's very unlikely that they would leave a gap for the whole thing to be reopened, but from very, very specialist carve-outs. So one of those carve-outs might be that effectively City have uh, defrauded UEFA in some way by, I, I don't even know, you know, lying to such a degree that the whole thing was a sham. I don't believe that what we've seen in these articles would amount to anything like that or anything that would therefore allow UEFA to say, right, well, we're ripping up the settlement and starting again. The whole point of the settlement is that it draws a line and everybody moves on. Okay. Um, just to playing devil's advocate for a minute, <clears throat> you've touched on Fordham, but to go back to part one of the leaks, um, there's the email from Simon Pierce with regards, I believe it's the Arbar sponsorship, where he says you will pay X millions and the Abu yeah. Dhabi United group will then transfer X millions to Arbar to pay the remaining amount of the sponsorship deal with Manchester City. Um, so two questions. Firstly, and I know that you've addressed it already, but I, I kind of want to hammer this point home over and over again. This agreement, whatever it is between Arbar and City, has already been seen by UEFA and is already part of the settlement agreement. So it's not, there. there isn't a, there isn't a revelation within the, the, the amount of the actual sponsorship. That's what I'm trying to get at because effectively the conversation seems to be they sponsored City for X amount, but actually Sheikh Mansour put Y amount into the company to pay the sponsorship. But in actual fact, what UEFA were looking at was just fair value, right? Not where the well, money yeah, came from. Yeah, so, so I think what we need to do is just look at two or three different aspects of what we're talking about here. So and this okay. applies to Arbar and also Etihad. Okay. Right, so first of all, you've got the contractual arrangement between the sponsor and the club. Okay, so from a contractual perspective, forget about UEFA for, for, for a moment. The, from a contractual basis, um, um, perspective... City have a deal with Arbar or Etihad that has a headline number in it and City's contractual rights against the corporate Etihad or Arbar is whatever the headline number is within the, within the agreement. Okay, so City have a legal right to those monies. Yep. Where those companies get their funding from to deliver that money is not City's issue. 
Okay, so if what happens is City send an invoice to to Etihad at the end of the year and they say, look, you owe us thirty five million pounds, and two payments arrive in City's bank account, one coming from Abu Dhabi United, uh, whatever, uh, you know, a different bank account, and and another payment comes from Etihad. From City's perspective, that is not something, aside from money laundering implications and all that sort of stuff, that's not something that City need to concern themselves with necessarily. Okay, okay. so from that from the legal perspective, invoice uh, and accounting, invoice has been issued, um, payment has been made. City have got the cash; they can recognise the the revenue uh, in, in their accounts with the relevant disclosures. There's then the accounting side of things. Now, the accounting side of things is likely to say where things are related party transactions, they will need to make the the relevant declarations within their accounts. They will also, on the UEFA fair play perspective, need to make those declarations to UEFA about what was and wasn't a related party transaction. As you say, it appears that the deals with Arbar and with Etihad were disclosed to it within the UEFA documents. What was probably not disclosed are these confidential emails that are, that are showing where the money is being directed from. Is that relevant, though, to the actual... So, because I'm, I'm a little bit unclear about something, I'm hoping you can clear it up, that it, what happened with those related party deals was that UEFA looked at them all, and if they felt that they were overvalued, UEFA devalued them. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. It's in, it's in the article. So I, I, it's not in the City article, but the, the, I think there is a long initial article, which is City and PSG. Uh, and it, it talks about the agency. So effectively what happened was all of the deals that, that City and, uh, uh, and PSG put forward as being their arms and sponsorship deals. Let's take the Qatar one as an example. right? So this was meant to be a, uh, a tourism deal with Qatar. It was effectively valued at three million euros by this agency, and it was in for two fifty or whatever at, at, uh, at PSG. So UEFA said, "Well, forget your two fifty. This is a three million pound deal maximum. So we're we're rebasing it." So I think, as far as I can understand, there was no issue with the disclosure of whether a transaction was a related party transaction and the fair value that went with it. But that's why I'm saying you need to separate the legal. From the accounting, i.e., as a in terms of the, the principles of accounting, and then the analysis in terms of UEFA fair play. Just because Etihad are put into funds to pay the sponsor obligation does not mean the fair value is the amount that came directly from Etihad. So, what it doesn't mean is if you take the Etihad example rather than the Arbar one, because it's just easier to, to talk about and very clear from. The article it talks about the sponsor obligation in December 13 being 35 million pounds. Yeah, it talks about Pierce saying that Etihad's direct contribution remains constant to eight million, therefore, obviously, 27 million pounds needs to be found from somewhere. What that doesn't mean is that the actual fair value assigned to the Etihad transaction, either in the outside world or by UEFA, is, is, is actually eight million pounds. It just doesn't mean that. Okay. It, that's just the amount of money that Etihad contributed. City may well have hidden the fact 
that 27 million of the 35 came through a different bank account and didn't wash through Etihad. But the reality is that the fair value assessment of that 35 million pound deal could have been anything from exactly. zero to 35. Yeah. So that's this is what I'm trying to get at, that, that there's a distinction between what... There's a distinction between where the money came from and how UEFA treated the money itself. Because ultimately, UEFA, the, the entire point on some level of financial fair play was to say, we can see that you have businesses that you can use to funnel money into a football club. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at any transaction that's potentially a related party transaction and then make a decision on what we think the fair value of that sponsorship deal should be. And again, just to reiterate, they did that with all of these deals, right? Well, we think so. I mean, I, I don't believe that there's an accusation here that there there was a deal that was not considered by PwC. Yeah. You know, that, that, that isn't stated anywhere, uh, but we haven't seen the PwC report. And, and, you know, it comes back to what I said earlier about this being a partial analysis of the facts. So what you don't know is what conclusion did PwC make about the Etihad deal? What we do know is that when the deals were put off to the agency, the, the, the sponsorship agency who valued the deals, all the deals were said to be worth much less than, than, than were stated on the face of the deals. Okay, but, but can't we find those figures in the actual settlement between UEFA and City? Because not, when, as, not as far as I'm aware. I don't think they went through each transaction and gave and detailed the, the fair value that was associated with it. Ah, Although okay, I do enough. think that in the original document on the Der, Der Spiegel, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I think it says that City had a shortfall of 180 based on the, re, the rebalanced, you know, the, the reassessed numbers. But if you look at something like Etihad, so the idea that Etihad's uh, sponsorship deal for shirt plus stadium was uh, was eight million pounds. That's clearly not right. Okay, so you know if you look at where we are today, and okay, we're three, four years on, five years on. Um, you know, West Ham's shirt deal alone is ten million pounds. Okay, Spurs is thirty-five. Arsenal, Chelsea. United, 45 plus. Kind of minimum City's Etihad deal for shirt alone five years ago must have been 25 million quid, minimum. Mm. So maybe, maybe on a fair value assessment, they chopped 10, 10 million quid off it. I don't know. Right? They would have gone through each of those contracts and said, look, that's just not the right number. Uh, you know, you've clearly inflated it. So we're chopping 5 million quid off. We're chopping 10 million quid off. City did not do a Qatari two fingers up to UEFA. We're doing 250 million euros a year. No. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but uh, I, my understanding from these are, these are not secret deals. We knew about Arbar and Etihad. What's the... Um... Where do we stand in terms of, before we move on to, to part two, because as I say, part one, it, at the root of it, it comes back to this idea of where did the money come from? To your understanding of, of the financial fair play rules, is there anything within that that Khaldun and the executive breached 
by allowing Abu Dhabi United to put money into Etihad or Arbar to prop up those sponsorship deals? Well, I don't believe from a cash perspective that that's the breach. I believe that the the breach is on... um the breach is on the headlines of the deals that were put into the club, not not the cash. It's not it's not cities, you know, morally whatever. I you know, let's I don't know what you want to call it, right? City definitely breached FFP. Okay, so the idea, and I don't think you know, we heard a lot of this in the run up. Not going to breach. We're not going to breach. We're like you know, they know what they're doing. The reality is, they breached. They knew they were going to breach. And they thought they could negotiate their way out of a problem. Okay, now whether they did a good job in terms of managing the breach or otherwise, I think these documents show that they actually didn't do a particularly good job, and their internal documents were were madness in my in, 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 from my perspective. If if you are, you know, if you know you're going to breach and you know there's a risk of litigation, to put all of this in writing is extremely naive, because you know, it's all going to come out. So um, they must have had a view from a very early stage that, yes, they were going to breach, but they'd be able to negotiate their way out of it. And they were right. Yeah, which is what they, to, to be clear, that's actually what they did. They they breached FFP. Uh, all of this information, so the amount that the sponsorship deals, that the, um, the value that City applied to the sponsorship deals that all of this information was available to UEFA and to UEFA's auditors. They then made decisions on what they valued. So irrelevant of separate to what, what actual amount was paid to Manchester City, what amount UEFA used to figure out their financial fair play calculations is not the same as the amount that City put that, that City brought in from the Abu Dhabi related sponsors because UEFA adjusted those already as part of that settlement agreement, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think you need to just, there's a couple of important things. First of all, do I think City will have been economical with the information provided to PwC uh, whilst remaining on the right side of legal? Yes. So do I think that they would have answered questions that they, in in a... what some people would say was an evasive manner, uh, but but legally correct, um, you know, something like um, the Simon Cliff answer to the Fordham. Do I think they would have done that regularly? Yes, I do. Okay. Do I think PBC would have drawn conclusions based on the information given to them that was uh, negative to City? Yes. Yeah, I think they do. I think they would have. Um, they would have said, look, we got a bit of an evasive answer here. We've concluded that actually, uh, in the absence of better information, that this deal is not an arm's length transaction and therefore has been inflated. And therefore, in our assessment, we've deducted it. From a commercial standpoint um, and a legal standpoint, uh, are City doing anything here that you find unique or um, particularly underhand what i'm trying to get at is how far away, how far off the reservation of normal practice did city find themselves in trying to get around ffp i i think it's impossible to say based on 
the the limited information that we've got. Okay. Right. What what you can say is that they did they tried to be clever, right, at every turn. Uh, but that's what we would have expected. That that they were using the uh, Abu Dhabi companies to fund the football club. Well, I mean that is hardly news, right? Not quite apart from the PwC UEFA work. It's hardly news to the outside world that that they had a whole load of sponsors that were effectively, uh, you know, part of the same group. Yeah, we all knew that. So, you know, I, I don't think City are whiter than white. I, don't, I think they breached FFP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they just took a different view, which was, one, we're, we're, we are going to breach because we've got a plan. Two, we will be able to settle it with UEFA because we're quite an important partner, uh, commercial partner. And we'll come on to talk about, oh, I think we will, about the whole UEFA. Why would UEFA even negotiate with City in this way? Because I think it's pretty obvious why they'd negotiate with City in this way. Um, but they took a view they'd be able to negotiate out, and they were right. Now, what that doesn't mean is that they told them literally everything. It doesn't mean that they handed over a whole load of the lawyer, the internal lawyers' emails, because that's not the situation. If you're in litigation with somebody, if you're, you're in uh, discussions with somebody prior to litigation... You don't hand over a whole load of documents that might be uh, damaging to your case. That mm. comes later if you end up in litigation. Mm. If you're in the if you're in a period where you're discussing the possibility of a di- let's say you're in a dispute with a corporate and you've got a dispute and you put your case to them in a letter and it says like you owe us fifty million pounds and they say well no we don't. You wouldn't expect that within the letter where they say, no, we don't, that they give you all the stuff that argues against their own position. Yeah. I mean, that's just not how it works. So now, why- a lot of that stuff will come out. If, so if that dispute about the £50 million ends up going to court, you go through a process of disclosure called discovery in the US, and, and those documents do come out to the extent that they're not what's known as legally privileged. Now, all of the lawyer's documents, so Simon Cliff's, documents where he's effectively giving internal legal advice to his internal client, i.e. the board, those are what's called legally privileged. Those wouldn't be available in litigation in any scenario. Hmm. So they, not only would they not be provided to UEFA in this kind of investigation phase, they wouldn't even be available if they got in, in litigation with UEFA. So the idea that those, those documents could be used against City is nonsense. Is there anything... Uh in the drop that you feel or you felt when you read instinctively, this can be used against City? Uh, well, if we hadn't done a settlement, it could all be used against City. I'm talking e- about... Except for Cliff's emails. Okay, so with within the context of the settlement, is there anything that you feel falls outside of the remit of the settlement? It's a very difficult question to answer. I, I suspect not. So the point of the settlement is to draw a line under the types of matters that are outlined in these articles. Now, there may be more documents that we're going to see that post-date the settlement. There may be, uh, UEFA may be revisiting as we speak their assessment of 2015, 2016, 2017, re-looking at these transactions, recalculating the numbers, 
and saying, right, okay, well, we can't get you on the period prior to 2014, but you've in this drop, we now know more about the way in which those transactions in 2014, 15, 16, what they actually, how they actually worked, and therefore we're reassessing the period post settlement. That that can't be ruled out. Okay. Has there, but there hasn't really been anything. So, would you? Are you surprised that there's been no post settlement document made public by Der Spiegel? So, would you expect? I mean, I'm asking you to speculate, but obviously, all of the if you want to call it shady paperwork that Der Spiegel have dropped, all seems to relate to pre our settlement with UEFA. And the conversation, me and you had a conversation on Tuesday, I believe, where we said, let's see if there's anything where we might run into murky water as if there is something from the last couple of years which shows City gaming the system. So far, there's been nothing that's shown that, has there? Well, there's the there's this the um, the Denmark article is a 2016 uh, document, but I don't really understand the document. You know, I don't really understand the the hack. It's it's very it's a very odd situation where the the only documents that Der Spiegel have got are those relating to a period, you know, what four or five years ago. That seems very very unlikely. If you've if you in the last few months have hacked the email system to many, many terabytes of information, uh, the chances are you've got the documents all the way through. Mm. Uh, and it may well be that this is just the first part of, you know, of the expose and they're, and they're really milking it for, uh, for all it's worth. And, you know, there's a, th- th- this stuff goes in football leagues book two and there's a book three coming, you know, in, in X months. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. It just seems unlikely that, um, one, it seems unlikely that there are no documents that in a partial disclosure of this nature and in a uh, pejorative type of article that you couldn't spin to be negative from from post-2014. That seems unlikely. Yeah. You know, if Simon Cliff is the kind of guy that hears about somebody on the on the um, the financial fair play board dying and says one down, six to go, <laughs> you'd have to think that he's made similarly silly statements over email uh, in the period after 2014. Okay, but aren't um, we, don't we have some post-2014 information within there? So I know I'm jumping ahead, but for example, um, is it part three that deals with Guardiola's contract? That's a post-2000, that's a post-UA settlement. It is. so, I mean, it's so undamaging. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, what is that, what, what is that uh, revelation that he signed a contract? I mean, it's just, it's a nothing, I don't know. I mean, it just seems, I don't even know why they put that in. It's a non-story. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what is a story, or certainly from my point of view, um, because I didn't fully understand the ins and the outs of it, and maybe you can explain it. In part three of the drop, Part two was Project Longbow, uh, which was using Fordham Sports, which you've already touched upon. Again, ultimately, that just came down to funneling money. It used being creative commercially or with the accounting to try and get around FFP, which is its own thing. But then, in yeah, part- you know what? I, I, the way I see that the Fordham situation is, first of all, I, I, as I've said before, I think PwC saw right through it. 
thought this is absolute nonsense. This is a this is a, a means to get around FFP. But I think what it does for City is if you're trying to build a situation with with UEFA, if you're trying to give UEFA what I would call litigation risk, i.e. a risk that UEFA go to court against City, what you want to do is create risk on UEFA's side. So you want to create situations where UEFA can't be sure that a court is going to side with them. So you do things that are right at the edges of acceptable. And you say, look, there's no rules in your FFP rules that say we can't do this. You know, innocent face. You know, and you create it. You're probably going to lose. So probably somebody will say, well, come on, everybody knows what exactly what that what that transaction was. It was a it was a bit of a scam. And, uh, you know, it was just a means to get around the rules. You might lose. But actually, you might say, well, we think we're strong on it and we've got a piece of legal advice and we took a, a counsel. So we went to a barrister and the barrister said, yeah, I've looked at the FFP rules and there's no reason why you can't do that. Yeah. So it creates a bit of risk on the on the UEFA side. OK, um, so then in part three, uh, the thing that really caught my eye was the Simon Pierce's reaction to Nick McGeehan's Freedom of Information Act request. Which so for those who don't know, Nick McGeehan is a is he an intellectual? He's he's I don't believe he's a journalist. He seems strikes me as a the human rights watch guy. Okay, so, so I he's, think he's, he's a, I think he's probably an academic. Yeah, he's a, working for Human Rights Watch, right? So, so, so he's an academic who's written a paper on cities ownership. Um, and actually the UAE's human rights record and the kind of connection between City and the UAE, which is a fair enough thing to write about. I mean, again, like for those who have read it, you'll know it's very, 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 very sensationalist, but that's kind of the way these things are. Um, however, it was interesting, Simon Pierce's response to Nick McGeehan. Um, how, how do you view that particular revelation how how damaging do you find that from a i think all the way through this there's the moral conversation and there's the commercial and legal conversation and we've dealt mainly with commercial and legal so far but just from a moral point of view how do you feel about simon pierce acting in that manner well for, first of all if you look at the simon pierce situation simon pierce is there was actually a much more interesting drop in respect to simon pierce in abu dhabi when uh the the there was a there was a big uh, drop of uh, leaked emails regarding New York. So one of the senior uh, Abu Dhabi, I think he was actually the ambassador to New to to the US, and he had his emails hacked. And there was a big release of uh, relevant emails with Simon Pierce, with uh, New York City, and all of that stuff covered covered in it. Okay, so that stuff, Simon Pierce's role as the kind of uh, defender of Abu Dhabi from a PR sense is very well known. There's no news in that. No. Okay, now his job, whether you like it morally or or not, his job is to defend his client. Right, he's very well rewarded for it, and that's his job. Okay, now you may object to the world of PR. Uh, particularly where it comes to defending nation states, but that is the situation. So the fact that he 
puts his hat on in that role and says, okay, well, what does this mean for my client, Abu Dhabi, and what should my response be? That can't be a surprise. Now, you may morally disagree with it, but it can't be a surprise to you. That's what Simon Pierce's job is. Now, if you look specifically at this situation, as, as I can read it, the Freedom of Information Act request does not look to me as if it goes into city. It looks like it goes into the council. Yeah. Now, I don't believe, and maybe I'm being naive, but I don't believe that the council go, oh, we've got a freedom of information request. We better call Simon Pierce of Abu Dhabi to see whether we can respond to the freedom of information request. That would be quite a big story, and it would be quite a big issue for Manchester City Council. Mm. What I think is more likely to have happened in the scenario that's outlined in part three is there is a document between Manchester City Council and Manchester City Football Club. That document will have a confidentiality clause within it. Within that confidentiality clause, there will be a carve out for certain situations, such as um, uh, the police want the document. Right In that scenario, whether the parties consent or not, a party will have a unilateral right to hand over that document. Yeah. A freedom of information request is probably not specified. And what the, that will therefore mean is that both parties would seek the other's consent in the event that somebody comes along and says, can I have this document? And that's what I suspect happened here. So there was a freedom of information request into the council. The council looked at the document and said, well, can we hand this document over? Their legal advice would have been, well, there's a confidentiality clause. You should get the consent of City. They called City. Simon Pierce leading in relation to it, or, or actually maybe the deal was with Abu Dhabi directly. But they looked at it, said, well, I can't see anything that's overly problematic with the, with the document, but I do know that McGeehan is very negative on Abu Dhabi. Uh, so clearly we're not going to rush to give it to him, but at the last date possible, we'll obviously hand it over because there's no reason for us to not hand it over. And that's what happened. Okay. Now, that's, you might think that's immoral, but, and, it, and it may well be, but it's also perfectly normal from a commercial standpoint that if somebody asks you for a document that is not beneficial to, to, to you to hand it over, but that you have no legal right to refuse to hand it over, you'll do it at the last minute. It was handed That's over. That's just though. the way it, it works. It, it was handed over, though. I mean, ulti ultimately, what what he asked for, he got right. As I understand it uh, from the article, um, he should get on the morning of the final day, which is September the first. Right. So, so effectively, again, if you put aside the kind of hysteria of it, city, what would have been to my mind, what would have made it newsworthy is had Simon Pierce gone, under no circumstances do you hand that document over. If you do, Abu Dhabi will pull all their business with the Manchester City Council, right? Something like that, to me, would be something that you could genuinely expose and say, look at what City were doing here. As you've just described this to me, City didn't break a law there they used the law to 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 the extent that they waited until the last date possible to hand the document over, but then handed it over. Well, uh, 
you know, we're, again, we're going on very partial information. I agree with you. If City would have said something that would have applied a level of pressure to suppress a damaging document by threatening to remove investment from the city, that would have been a much bigger story. Totally. I think this is a story because people don't really understand what the what the Der Spiegel article is actually saying because I think Der Spiegel have written it in a deliberately uh, obtuse manner such that you can't actually understand the point they're making. Exactly. Right? Because I think they could have said, why, why is Simon Pearce being asked for this document? Right? So, I... I you know, did they get an email? So in an email from Manchester City Council, Simon Pearce was asked to consent to the release of the document pertaining to the site where the team had built the Etihad campus. Pearce take, took a close look at the document, said that he saw a little risk in it from a human rights perspective, but that he wanted to give it at the last possible moment. Now, if they'd explained it in a proper full way, then it wouldn't have been, you know, seen as this kind of, human rights, uh, you know, sort of uh, cover-up. The attempt to suppress a human rights scandal, which is the way that it was framed when in actual fact, the information that the academic asked for, he received. He just received it on the last possible date that they had to give it him on, which, you know, for anybody who's a freelance who has to invoice people for money, They'll know that you generally there's a lot of things in life that come on the last day that they're meant to. Well, come. you're lucky if you get stuff on the last day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, people are overdue on stuff like this the whole time. Yeah. Um, hey, listen, I want to talk. I want to. I want to talk about the next thing because, again, you know, on the face of it, it looks pretty damning, and that is the um, correspondence with respect to the Arab Tech sponsorship deal. And in particular, Vicky Kloss's email. Now, I'm going to ask you the question as I put it in the notes. In your opinion, was an ethical line crossed or was Vicky's email just her doing her job in presenting the PR, the community? Because she is the director of communications for the City Football Group. So the potential downside of the blowback of that well no I don't, I don't think any ethical line was crossed by her i think she she was asked for her view or, or, or certainly um wanted to present her view regardless of whether she was asked for it or not uh, and she's very clear she says we shouldn't do this transaction she says it is full of risk uh, the Arab tech are not an organization we should be seen to be dealing with. And from her perspective, she comes across very well, in, in, in my view. I don't think there can be any criticism of her in, in this respect. Ultimately, the senior management, of which she's probably not at the top table, she's somebody that's providing advice to the senior management, took a different view. Mm. So, you know, override such concerns. They didn't override such concerns, as it so happens. What they did was they kind of fudged it a little bit. So they said, well, you know, Vicky's probably got a point, so let's be a bit smarter about how we do this. Let's not take it in the UK, but in some of the other areas where people are less sensitive to this stuff, the Arab states, Russia and Turkey, well, you know, we, we'll take the money. And... Uh, uh, and they kind of compromised, but and that's that's their business. 
uh, I think from Vicky Kloss's perspective, she set out her view very clearly, and I think she comes across very well within that, and and is, uh, you know, I think she, not that she needs the vindication, but I, I don't see she's done anything wrong. Okay, uh, uh, and and the club, you know, we are definitely at one end as a club. We are at one end of taking approaches on this type of situation. Okay, they clearly look at things through the prism of how they look in the Arab world. Uh, and it's not the same as we look at it in the West, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Um, it, it, are City unique in having a commercial partnership with a large, I don't want to say third world company, but with a large company with a shady reputation? or a shady human rights reputation. How, how again, how off the reservation are Manchester City in doing this deal from a commercial sense comparative to all other football clubs? We've got a world... I mean, I, I don't need to defend City, right? So, or, or, or the way that, that Abu Dhabi... Uh, Abu Dhabi's investment corporation operates or how Arab tech works... I've I've no real view on it, and if I did have a view, it's not for the, for this forum anyway. The reality is, we are we've got a World Cup in Qatar in twenty twenty two, where companies like Arabtech are building fifteen stadiums, whatever the number is, across that country. Okay, so who's taking commercial deals from companies like these guys? FIFA. So, you know, yes, lots of people have objected to it. Uh, they're probably right. Uh, the human rights of these uh, organisations are look to be dreadful. People are dying in the building of these stadiums. But who deals with them? Lots of people. And, uh, you know, if FIFA can take the money from these overall situations, well, then it's pretty hard for, for people to argue the city shouldn't be entitled to as well. Okay. That's, that's a perfectly fair answer and... It might be a cop out. I mean, I, you know, people could listen to this and go, "Well, you've got no, you know, you, you're not going to be welcome at the Guardian um, Garden Party." But um, I don't know. It's no, not, but I want know. a commercial answer in that sense. Well, that's a commercial. So there's your commercial answer. I'm not giving a moral judgment on yeah, it. No, there's the commercial answer. I think that there's a throughout all of this, right? I think that the big distinction for me is that on the one side, you've got all the moral outrage, which is fine. Everybody is entitled to, we all have personal opinions on all of this stuff. Some of us, even among City fans, might not agree. I think what's more interesting is looking at all this through a commercial and legal prism to try and understand how City will feel right now and moving forward, what the possible ramifications are. Um, so again, when you put aside the hyperbole or the, you know, the embarrassment of having your emails hacked and having Vicky Kloss's advice to the board being made public doesn't change, as you say, the facts that the 2022 World Cup is in Qatar and Arab Tech and all of these companies will be involved in the building of the infrastructure. So FIFA are quite happy to do business with them. So the, you know, it, it's, it's a, I don't think City have crossed a line here commercially that nobody else has ever crossed within football and therefore we should all be shocked. Okay. I mean, I'm one gonna- thing that I did raise in relation to this is, 
Arab Tech are, as far as I understand it, a completely independent third-party company. I say completely independent. In terms of FFP, they're, they're independent and they're not a related party. So what you wouldn't do here and what you wouldn't see is somebody saying, right, what's the fair value of the Arab Tech Man City arrangement? Is 7 million the right number? That wouldn't be subject to a fair value appraisal. That would be taken on its face value. Now, if that is fair value, £7 million per annum, it just shows the value that the club now can generate from commercial agreements uh, itself that are genuinely uh, arm's length. You know, this is a, uh, a regional sponsorship deal and it's bringing in £7 million a year. If you then reflect back on the £8 million a year that the, Etihad, that the article in part one implies is the fair value of the Etihad sponsorship, it just shows you what a nonsense that would be. Yeah, okay. Um, if we look at uh, the whole leak and the whole drop, there's two, in the, in the final part, there are two, two things which I, two sentences or statements, whatever you want to call them, that I think are interesting and worth a little bit of discussion. We'll save the, the what I think is the positive one for last. But I want you to deal with this. They draw the conclusion without systematic rule violations, hidden payments, and secret cash injections, Manchester City's success story would not have been possible. What I want you to do is tell me what this what this actually means. What systematic rules did City violate? Which hidden and what were the hidden payments and secret cash injections that they refer to within that and what of and what of all of those things has not been dealt with by uefa what is actionable i guess that's okay, what well we don't well, first of all we don't know right i'll tell you what it's referring to the systematic it's referring to all of the above right i don't, I don't think they're suggesting that there's a, a whole other tranche of uh, of articles that they've got lined up to, so what to deal rules with were this period. What rules were violated, in your opinion? Well, their suggestion is that we breached... You know, they've said it in the other articles. It's made it very clear, their view, is that, that City breached FFP and got a ludicrously low punishment for doing so. That's their view. That's their, uh, you know, that's their conclusion based on the work that they've done, based on these articles. That's their conclusion. Now, you can agree with it or disagree with it, uh, this is an opinion statement, okay? Uh, nothing more than that. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's a... Uh, you know, I think that if you wanted to write it in a fairer way, uh, you know, without uh, without the things that we've referenced in our previous articles, it would have been much more difficult for City to have been uh, as successful as they've been so far. Mm. You know, it would have taken them longer. I mean, that's really the bottom line. It, it, nothing says that it would have been impossible to do it. It just would have taken longer. We wanted to accelerate getting to the top table at football as quickly as possible. And, and that success story has been made possible by doing everything that they could to, uh, one, invest the amounts of money that they invested, and to make a settlement with UEFA that ultimately, again, as is in the article, was not materially damaging to the club. Okay. And so the opinion is kind of right, but is written, in a again, in a pejorative manner. Um. I guess to wrap up then, what I'd like you to do is 
if you can briefly just touch upon where you think UEFA stand in all of this. And what I what I mean by that is what why did they why the conclusion is drawn that UEFA were ludicrously lenient with Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain. Why do you think UEFA behaved in the way that they did in 2014 and 15? And sitting here today, how do you think UEFA will view... Because I'm sure that UEFA will be able to also cut through the pejorative language and look at the cold facts of everything that's been leaked. How do you think UEFA will view everything that's been leaked? Well, it's a bit harder for them to cut through it because they're... You know the way these things work. So they are now under pressure to do something and, and to take action. Okay, so that's a problem for for, for City. Uh, I still believe, um, and it, you know, I might be being naive, but I still believe that the settlement will make it extremely difficult to reopen the discussion on almost all of the stuff that's in these articles. Um, what that doesn't mean is that they can't look at stuff in the forward periods uh, after the settlement, and I'm sure that they will do. When it comes down to it, though, you still get back to the same point. And that same point is the commercial agreement between UEFA as the organiser of the Champions League, as a party that wants to keep its members happy, and a commercial risk that if it goes to litigation, that they lose. And more than that, that there's a whole load of disclosure that they don't want to give. Because the thing that nobody's talked about is that the idea that within UEFA, one of the reasons UEFA wouldn't have wanted to go to litigation with City is because City would have had to have disclosed a lot of the documents that are, form part of the league. But UEFA would have also had to disclose documents on their side. So City would have alleged that FFP had been created by a small set of clubs uh, effectively to prevent uh, competition um, and therefore, as part of the process of disclosure and discovery around that bit of litigation, UEFA would have been forced to disclose anything, whether beneficial to their case or not, pertaining to that allegation. Now, the idea that UEFA would have once wanted City to be in possession of a whole load of, for example, emails from Real or United or Barcelona saying, you know, we've got to stop this oil money, it's a disgrace, uh, how can we do it? We need some kind of financial fair play. You know, the idea that they want... United would have lobbied against rules relating to debt. Yeah. UEFA don't want that stuff out there. Mm. So there was a commercial decision taken in 2014 that on a kind of net-net basis and a risk analysis, do we want to be in litigation with one of our top clubs? And they took the view they didn't. Well... It's hard to imagine how five years later, when City are probably even stronger, probably have done less in terms of breaching rules, that they would then say, actually, now is the time that we will go and prosecute uh, um, and litigate. I think it's unlikely. So I think you end up getting to the same, the same end game where even if they could theoretically want to take action and bring on litigation... The likelihood is, again, that you end up in a settlement um, of some sort. Now, that may be positive or not. Uh, you know, what you can see from these articles is they were very close to not reaching a settlement. Yeah, yeah. And the, so the last thing for me is very much in part four, which is the final leak. It has the, the sentence which almost seems buried deep somewhere within it. Um, 
that, of course, City are now a profitable business. And my question for you is, for them to write that, because it it, it, it is, for me, it's pertinent within the context of the conversation about information that they would have about City's finances post the settlement period. If the Der Spiegel article itself is saying City are now a profitable business, the implication is that they're profitable without the um, the propping up somehow of Abu Dhabi. Do you think that's a fair implication? If the, if well, Der Spiegel, I, I don't think it's it. necessarily based on secret documents, though. So you know, if you look at the situation that we've got now, so in the period since the settlement, sponsorship deals have gone up. Yeah, City's place at the top table has become more entrenched. So from a financial perspective and a commercial perspective, you look at the building blocks of, of, of the club's profit and loss account. You've got very substantial money coming from the, the kit manufacturing deal. Puma is a £50 million deal, I think, per, per annum. Okay, uh, That's a third-party deal. There's no way you can unpick that. That's what it is. Yep. You've got uh, Champions League revenue. City are one of the highest uh, generators of Champions League revenue year in, year out. Uh, they win the Premier League... Um, and they get the top amount of prize money from the Premier League. Again, there's no way to get around that in terms of fair value. You've got uh, a, an Etihad um, sponsorship deal, which is clearly in the ballpark of the biggest deals in the space. And therefore, from a fair value perspective, you're not good. if you reappraise it, it's not going to come down materially. So when you put all of that together, the club is, is you know... I think pretty clearly now it, it, profitable uh, in a conventional sense, uh, even if you were to try and pick holes in it, okay. uh, even if there are one or two agreements around the edges that are, um, that are questionable for value, they, they won't be enough to cause them a particular issue. So from a spirit of financial fair play point of view, um, City have, more or less kept within the spirit of financial fair play. Because if we go back to 2010, 11, when the conversations began about financial fair play, UEFA were at, were at pains to stress that clubs, the owners were allowed to invest as long as they were showing that they were heading towards a profitable direction. So the idea, the spirit of financial fair play if you take UEFA at face value, was not to stop investors from investing in football, but it was to stop relentless debt. So effectively, the idea that seven or eight years in, you're still losing two, three hundred million a year and your owner has to dump it in to balance the books. It's fair to say that we've we've reached a point where we are now well within and every to I guess what I'm trying to get at here is if I look at the journey that City have been through and I look at what financial fair play as a rule was and what it was set up to avoid and what it was set up to try and stop, we've remained within the spirit of it. Fair thing to say? Well, I don't know about within the spirit of it. I mean, the club has had an enormous amount of investment that's been made. Uh, that was probably not in the spirit of financial fair play. What I think you're saying, which I think is right, is that it, it ended up achieving the the ultimate stated aim of FFP, which is to create 
a sustainable Thank you. football club uh, from a financial perspective. And, and, and that fundamentally is because what's happened is against uh, my scepticism and, and many others, uh, even with the investment, by the way, they have somehow managed to create a global super club. You know, whether you like it or not, the fact that City are, are considered to be uh, favourites for the Champions League, or one of, say, the top eight European clubs, is an amazing achievement from a business and a commercial perspective over a period of 10 years. And, um, and that has allowed them then to be self-sustaining. Uh, and over time to, one, from an investment perspective, probably give a profit to the owners – despite the fact they spent an enormous amount of money on it, um, and two, to actually create something that, uh, all things being equal, should be self-sustaining, even if the oil did dry up tomorrow. Excellent. Yeah. Um, Okay. I think think we've gone around the houses and more or less covered everything that was in those leagues. Just to sum up, Stefan... um, how do you how do you feel? How do you compare and contrast the meat of the leaks with the reaction, particularly within the British media? I know you touched upon it at the top of the podcast, but I think now that we've been through everything and the kind of potential ramifications for City and what they actually did, as opposed to the way that it's been dressed up, has anybody outside of Martin Samuel actually tried to analyze the league and how do you feel about in general about the way the media have dealt with it uh, the, the only thing i can say is to be fair to the people that are reporting on it they're sports journalists okay so nine out of ten of them are are sports journalists there's no reason why a sports journalist can understand the commercial realities that, that are described in these articles why why would they then they're not legal experts. They're not accounting experts. They're not FFP experts. They don't work for PwC. They haven't seen the PwC report. They weren't party to any of the negotiations. So why would they be in a position to to do anything but read Desh Beagle, which is which is a uh, a reputable publication, to read the publication and go, "Ooh, that does look quite dirty to me," um, and um, I'm going to call it out. Uh, why wouldn't they do that? So I don't. That they, it's very hard for them to know any better in terms of the detail around here. Now they could take a bit more time in in speaking to people that might understand it in in a bit more detail. Uh, I think that would be fair. And and I also generally object to articles of this nature going only to speak to so called financial football experts at universities because often those people are. Uh, without being disrespectful, don't have also don't have the commercial uh, understanding of what it's really like in dealing with some of these sorts of situations for people running businesses. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite, I don't get quite as upset about it as some people have in terms of the, the where the press have gone with it. I, I, I just think. They should realise the limits of the understanding that they have of this situation and understand that what they've got here is a partial drop. You know, if they've got the underlying document, as I as I, I tweeted earlier, um, 
again, actually in response to a very good journalist, the, the guy from, um, actually I can't even remember where he's from, Tarek from... Tarek Pancher uh, from the New York Times. Uh, is in New, so he's New York Times now. And he's a very good journalist. But, you know, the idea that uh, on, on that, uh, the Danish article, it's so clearly partial in terms of, you know, there's a, there's a key clause Clause 3.1, where they've actually given the clause that effectively, apparently, is the one that is the killer clause for City and says that they breached third-party ownership rules. The first three words of the clause are subject to Clause 3.5. You can't read 3.1 as a clause without seeing 3.5 because the clause itself is qualified by a different clause, which they haven't shown. You know, it's that kind of very partial analysis that makes it very difficult for people to properly comment. And there should be a bit more appreciation of that. Um, but, you know, they're sports journalists generally, and that's, I think, to be expected. Okay. All right. Um, hey, Stefan, thank you. Uh, but we're not done. Uh, let's talk about some sports before I, uh, before I let you go. Um, there's a football game this weekend. City, uh, City play United at the Etihad in the Derby. Um your thoughts on on United so far this season and what you expect from this derby? Uh, I don't know. I think United are... I, I, like, I've been consistent throughout that. I think United got exceptional uh, players. And the idea that they haven't been given sufficient funds to build a squad, uh, I, I just think is a complete fallacy. So, um, you know... I've been very surprised over the last few years, but particularly this season, that they have not been able to tailor a squad to compete properly. Um, now, that said, I think they've been extraordinarily fortunate over the last few weeks. I've not watched every minute of every game. That It's often been in the corner of my eye. Um, it's still been painful to watch United get last-minute winners as frankly, as painful as it's ever been. Um, and uh, I do think they're a threat on at the weekend. Uh, and, you know, I think they've got very good players. So things can happen and they can still finish very high. Uh, they can still win a lot of games. Uh, I still think they've got fundamental problems with the manager and with the players. Uh, but I think talent-wise, I, I think they've got very good players. Where a city um, within that, just in terms of we've not really spoken in the last few weeks about City's form and, and how they've been performing. Um, how do you how do you feel going into the derby based on City's recent performances and form? I, I mean, I, I, to me, it's, what we're doing at the moment is, is actually mind blowing. So you know, we talked a lot about this is not normal what we're doing, but actually. Uh, it's not just the sort of scores and the, the end result. The level of performance over 90 minutes on a consistent basis is just, it's just amazing. I mean, you know, we are, we are just so good at the moment. It's, it's scary, you know, and the, as you've talked about earlier in the week, the interchangeability of players, uh, the, the, the system, the desire, the hunger... All of those things that you that you fear might have fallen off this season haven't at all. Um, so I think I think we're in amazing form. I think everything is 
incredible. De Bruyne, I think, is a big he's a big hit. But then again, the flip side is that we've done all this without him and he's going to be fit in the second half of the season. But I do think he's a big loss. Uh, but, you know, the players are in incredible form and we should win the game. Have we reached but a, it's United? Yeah, have we have we reached a point where? So, ne, tell me who your untouchables are in that best eleven for games like this. I think when you look at you know United home or away, Liverpool home and away, Spurs home and away, the big 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 games. Who are the players that you're looking at and you're going, okay, they're 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 untouchable in these games. They will definitely start. Yeah, well, well, I think we've now we're now at a point where we've probably got nine, nine, nine are untouchable. Go for it. Edison, Walker, Laporte, Stones, um, yeah, fullback. I don't know. I mean, I think the Mendy situation is is still brewing. I still think he'll play, but but I don't think it's he's not nailed it down for yeah because of some of the issues that we're talking about. So he would be one that is a slight question mark. That midfield three without De Bruyne is, is is nailed on for me. The two silvers and Fernandinho. Sergio is the nailed on striker. Sterling is the nailed on uh, around him. And then one of Mares and Sane. So, you know, the team is pretty much picks itself. Uh, not, you know, I would say nine of them pick themselves. It's an incredible team playing incredibly well. Uh, and they know exactly what they're doing. But, you know, I do... I don't think it's impossible that United can do something against us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I said the same um, a couple of days ago. I I feel as though, you know, one of the one of the one of the things about United right now is that they because they can look so poor, they can lull the casual observer into a false sense of security. Yeah, yeah, I totally. You know what? It's not just the casual observer. I think they're doing that on the pitch. Yep. I think totally. teams are getting complacent on the pitch. Totally, totally. I think the fact that, you know, I, I, I've i watched... So, for example, I watched the Bournemouth game. And the Bournemouth game is a fantastic example of, you know, you could argue Bournemouth bullied United for 45 minutes, but you could also argue that United went, all right, you've got 45 minutes to show us what you've got, and then we're going to play football. And then they did, and then they won. And Bournemouth, for all of their lovely football and 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 all of their kind of you know the the pass and move quality of it, they only scored one goal. And you know that's United can go two goals down and, and win games. They they've shown recently. So yeah, <laughs> well yeah, we know that, right? I yeah, mean, so oh, we've been taught that lesson. I mean, that my my hope is that we know it ourselves. We know we've got to take our chances. Uh, we know we can't, even if we're 2-0 up at half-time, we know that the game isn't won, and we've got to concentrate for for the full 95 minutes. You know, I just hope that we take the lesson that you're talking about. With that, I think teams do get complacent against United because they can't believe that United are going to come back. Mm. Um, is, there a, is there a stability? Are we more stable this season? And do you feel that that, would give you more confidence. Does do you see what I mean? Like if you look at that period very specifically, um, uh, the Liverpool two Champions League games and the United game right before we win the league, there is a moment where you feel there's instability in the side. And, when but, you look at the the development of the team since then, do you see a change? Yeah, but you wouldn't have seen it then, right? Would you? No. I mean, you know, the United game, we didn't look. We, <laughs> 
there wasn't any element of an instability in the first half. And yes, okay, there was Anfield, but there were extenuating circumstances at Anfield. Um, okay, you could say that earlier in the season you'd seen it. We haven't seen any instability this season, I agree with you. Um, although uh, maybe the first five minutes against Liverpool, we were a bit... We, there, there was some signs we were a bit rocky. Mm. We, we looked very stable, I agree with you. But I don't... We didn't look unstable, you know. We didn't look unstable historic last season. So, I I think there's a good chance that uh, this is a game where I think the range of score lines <laughs> is is actually enormous. Yeah. You know, like often you think I just can't see. You know, if I look at some of these games recently, I just can't see any scenario where Southampton score, let's say, twice. Yeah. Right? I could see maybe they can get a goal. I just can't see they can score twice. Uh, certainly not twice where it's a problem to us. You know, So if somebody's got scored six, you could always concede. United could score three and we could score any number. Yeah. You know, so mm. the, I don't know. We could get beat. We could, you know, there's a theoretical possibility of getting beat 2-3-0 by United. They're, they're, they are good enough to do that. Uh, likewise, we could beat them heavily. Um, I'm not sure I mean? they've got. Yeah, I do. I'm not sure they've got a clean sheet in them. I'll be really honest with you. I, I yeah, I think that's probably true. But but you know we don't. We're still, despite how good we are, we still miss a lot of chances. Yes, we do, and I do think that you know form does go out the window in a derby. But I, if I'm going to look at the positives, then I'll say that I don't see United keeping a clean sheet. Absolutely not at the Etihad, and I feel as though defensively we've been more stable this season in general than we were last season. And the other positive is that we had a relatively straightforward home Champions League game in midweek, whereas they had to go to Turin and they left it very late. And I think that that's might play into our hands. I think if you leave it late, I mean, depends upon the way you look at it. A last minute winner can give you a bounce going into the weekend, but it can also point to physical exertion in the last 45, mental exertion, that might be a little bit difficult to to re-energize from and be ready and be fully focused again. I think that's right. I'd agree with you. The only, the the kind of, the the unknown, well, it's not really an unknown, but the the problem that is, is possible is... We know they'll just launch high balls at a certain point in the game, right? And if you put the ball in very, very dangerous areas enough time, you can score goals. We saw that last season with them. They scored, you know, two of the goals were just sticking a good ball into a dangerous area. Yeah. That's a problem. There's not a lot you can do. You know, like Fellaini is really difficult to defend against in a Wimbledon-style way. I mean, it's not great football, and it's what, but it's what they end up doing. It's so, effective. I mean, you know, if if they can go to Turin and make it work for them, it doesn't really matter what the stats of the game were, and it doesn't really matter what Ronaldo says after the game. The you know the result is the result is the result, and uh, so yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that that's my bigger fear is not really a. Um, a collapse in the way that that we collapsed last season at the Etihad. My biggest fear is that it's tight enough one way or the other that the last 15 minutes, it encourages Mourinho to stick Fellaini up top and just start hoofing it. 
because I'm not sure that City's reaction to that within the kind of blood and thunder of a derby will be calculated in the way that you need to be calculated to exploit the flip side of that kind of... If they're going to go super direct, then I think that we have to be absolutely clinical on the break. But I think to be clinical on the break, you've got to be cold of mind, cold of heart. And, you know, I don't know how many of our players are and I don't know... That's not a criticism of them. It's just, you know, like you said, we miss a lot of chances. Um, and then there's the added thing of the fact that it's a derby. Derby brings with it so much emotion that, you know, maybe players are less uh, thoughtful in the things that they do and act a little bit more upon instincts and emotion. Um, okay, Stefan, I'm going to do the thing that I hate doing myself. Predict me a score for the derby. Um, 2 nil. To United. I mean, to <laughs> two nil to City. Okay, um, you know what? Go I'm, I'm going to go William. with three one. I'm going to go with three one, and the one coming in the last ten minutes after City score three in the first hour. Um, right, wonderful. An hour and twenty five minutes, but well worth it. Um, Stefan, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. Cheers. To everybody who listened, thank you very much. This was the Friday show on the 9320 podcast. Normally we do these things slightly differently. They're a little bit shorter, but today with the FFP Football League stuff, we've done it slightly differently. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back on Monday with a review of the Derby. In the meantime, be safe, be well, enjoy your weekend, and up the blues. <laughs>